Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I'm staring deep into the eyes of Ben Smith, who is here in person. Ben is the co-founder of Semaphore. Because you are listening to this podcast, you know what Semaphore is. Welcome, Ben. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. It's great to it's great to be here with all these Sema fans. There's me, <laughs> and then no, you're people who already right. know what Semaphore is. I love it. There's people here. Unlike everyone else in media who covers media, I have refrained from writing or really commenting much about Semaphore because I wanted to see it before it came out. We're recording this the Friday of your launch week, so it's been out for a couple of it days. It is such a relief to just to be able to say, "Here's the thing," because I mean, talking about it, I think to the media is. There was no point, and I stopped many months ago. And But actually recruiting, you're like, come join this thing. It's going to be awesome, I promise. Let me tell you a lot of abstract words. It's very hard. And so it's really nice, including for recruiting. I had this theory for that. a while that you had intentionally tried to confuse people about what it was. Oh, yeah. It's actually a well-known tactic of mine, just that intentional Intentional obfuscation. Yes, that's what it was, 100%. Everything is calculated. So I can hear in the in my head my, my producer saying, yeah, you, should, you should still explain who Ben is and what Semaphore is. So if you've wandered into this podcast blindly and you have no idea what any of these things you are. Sh- you should get out now. You should leave. Uh, what is Semaphore? I thought you were going to say. No, you're talking. Okay. We're a new- I want to hear your new explanation of it. Yes, well, you can see it and see if it matches my description. But we're a new global media company. You know, our kind of core bet is on transparency and kind of you know, which means when it comes to the web, just literally breaking down the form of the story and saying, here are the facts, here's the journalist's point of view on those facts, here's some other opinions. In, in trying to be humble, open to outside views, and bring global perspective to the news. So in the sake of transparency, we should disclose that you and I talked a couple times about me coming there and obviously it didn't happen. I'm here, you're there. Um, uh, is that Now, is that your secret you just told or my secret? I don't know if it's a secret. I think I if just, I said I it. I just want to have transparency. By the way, I, I, feel I, like, I think you talked to a lot of people, so I don't feel like I'm in a special category. Gosh, that was a really weird thing to say, Peter. I mean, I'm a huge admirer of yours, but I would not comment on personnel matters. I just figured in case someone asked, <laughs> we could do it. And it'd be a fun gimmick to have transparency. Yeah, right the, the problem the was we already, like, actually, the problem was we already had, like, an overpaid media reporter in me. And so, like, didn't want a second you know, overpaid media was, it reporter. It would have misunbalanced the place. Now that we've done the awkward transparency part, I, I want to go back to that was radical transparency. What confused people when you in initially left the New York Times, where you worked before, and you and Justin Smith, who was at Bloomberg, had this line about we're reaching, we're going to make a global media news company for two hundred million college-educated people who speak English, and there's a lot of head scratching about one what you were actually trying to do, and two. A lot of people saying, well, isn't that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the FT, among others? So one, explain what the 200 million yeah. college-educated English people market is and then why you need to be in it. Yeah, and I really appreciate that question because, it, right, I think it was a little head-scratchy and we didn't particularly try to explain it. But actually, it really was what we, we said what we meant then, and I think it's really clear now. And in particular, the context was somebody asked, you know, are you – so it's global, capital G global. Does that mean like the FT, like Monocle, like, you know, which is to say – 
aimed at the business class traveler, aimed at the capital G self-identified globalist. And and I think what's interesting and a huge change in the world is that there is now you know a big you know middle and upper middle class around the world who are really interested in the news, who went to college in English, millions of college English people graduating college in English, you know, for the last 20 years all over the world who Maybe they read the New York Times because everybody cares about Donald Trump. Everybody cares about American politics. And if you care, you read Maggie Haberman. But you don't – if you're Nigerian, you're not reading the New York Times about Nigeria. Like we read the New York Times about Nigeria. And and that's the audience that we are interested in. It's not one audience. It's not a capital G global audience. But we took – you know, we kind of took our first step by launching in the U.S. and in sub-Saharan Africa. Another – another – this was, I gosh, another former media reporter, Yinka Adagoke, mm-hmm. um, who, who um, before he launched a very successful regional – publication, African publication for courts was uh, at Billboard, but a great Nigerian editor, you know, is, is, is launching a publication aimed at, you know, aimed at a regional conversation that you and I aren't really in. And if you read that and you think, wow, this is telling me exactly what I want to know about Africa, like we're missing, we're not aiming, you know, and, and there are big groups of people all over the world for whom really, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of go at the the local or regional market with really high quality journalism. And that's not shot at the New York Times or the FT to say that that's not what they're doing. It just doesn't, it's just not what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it reads right now to me very FTE. And, and you mentioned the, the business class. Uh, I mean, I think the FT is a fabulous publication. Yeah. And I will take that as a compliment. But, but the FT's like African coverage is aimed at a banker in the city of London. And ours is aimed at a banker or a teacher or a therapist in Lagos. And those are really different audiences. I, that's the, and it, the second. Your Africa coverage is the part I've read the least. Um, that's good. That means we're succeeding. So the but the, it's, the DC stuff, the tech stuff, all great. Yeah. But also seems like it's aimed at an audience who one knows what's going on. You're sort of dropping them in. They, yeah. It, it assumes that they're relatively sophisticated. You don't have to sort of right. back explain a lot of stuff. Right. And that's true of the Africa coverage too. In each of our beats, we're sort of. I mean, we're trying to go fairly deep and verticalized, and so getting into a. Yeah, aimed aiming at a sophisticated reader who's interested in the subject. And so you think that does not exist somewhere else. That's why you're doing it. You know, I, I guess we didn't really think about it in terms of, you know, drawing circles on the map of each or on the, on a whiteboard of each other publication and trying to find a lane. It was more just thinking, you know, and I definitely had kind of a front row seat at this to the Times where every story I wrote in some degree was giant institution realizes that it's way out of sync, both in terms of the way it's publishing and the way it's presenting itself with lots of its audience or television network or whatever, tries to steer the ship like two degrees and triggers an insane civil war that paralyzes the place for two years. And I think the, and you know, and that's a good a lot argument of for a startup because you don't, you don't right. have that overhang. So, yeah. And you see these opportunities and they're hard to get to in your existing institution. The world is changing really, really fast. And so I think it's not, you know, there's just huge piles of obvious public opinion research that matches everybody's conversations when you tell people you're a journalist, that people feel massively overwhelmed by the news, and yet at the same time don't really know what to trust. And so I think we more were thinking, okay, how could we, if we were starting from scratch, kind of go at those problems then? Which lane do we fit into? And that was one of the other things that confused me in your public stuff. And when we spoke, this idea of like that you're bringing transparency to your publications and also that there's polarization is a big problem and this is going to this is a reaction to polarization or it's it's a way to help solve it. You're not you're not saying you're going to solve yeah, polarization. I, but I'm a little confused about that too. Sure. I mean, I think a like, lot you know, I mean, there's this, you know, and again, I right. I mean, thank you for saying we're not going to solve it. Like, you know, every, there's huge social ills that you can maybe try to, you know, that is a, is, and there I think is in our, 
particularly in our corner of social media, this idea that every major problem in the world is largely the media's fault and every solution can be delivered by the media. And in fact, you know, these huge well, social Twitter. forces at work. We can fix Twitter. That would solve it. Too. Uh, that will help. Um, but there are huge social forces at work. Anything we're going to do is sort of on the edges. But I do think when you think about what alienates people from the media and from institutions, right? Like it's not like the media is the only institution losing trust, although we actually have managed to somehow be at the bottom. You know, there are these huge shifts in how people connect and and that you see in politics, in sports, in Hollywood, in terms of a shift away from kind of faceless institutions and toward individuals. The news industry really has lagged that, I think, because it was sort of, it's always sort of a backwater of a business, and or at least the, the written news industry, TV. If, if you have a situation in which you have an audience that is suspicious of you and you can either, there are, I think, kind of two obvious ways to go. One is you say you strip all anything that appears to be anything other than a dry recitation uh-huh. of facts out. And the journal is steering that way right now. Maybe that kind of makes sense for them. I think I, I was told Bloomberg that there's, there's that, a new rule. Style. To, well, Bloomberg's, yeah, but I mean, the journal, I was told there's a new rule at the journal that you're not even allowed to have your own analysis in the nut graph that also has to be in quotes. And then on the other, in the other direction, you can say, well, the reality is, you know, the, in this black box of an article, what it actually is, is you've got some facts and you've got the reporter's point of view. The reporter's an expert. It's what you do on this show, among other things. You have facts. You have your point of view. You know you might be wrong, but you're being straight ahead and you're asking the reader or the listener to connect to you, not to some sort of voice of God. I, when I think about polarization, I think about people reading Fox News and it's – and I and I'm will stay on the right because I don't think it's – I don't think we should – it's no, we don't have false equivalence here, but it's, well, it's can people I, reading. Can I stop you on that? Because I yeah. both agree that we don't want to have false equivalence. Truly, don't want to have false equivalency, and that the sort of information bubble around right-wing populist movements is bigger and different than other things. But also, we're all subject to the same psychological Sh- sure, failings but, and, and elements of the but, narrative about misinformation. If, if we want to pick sort yeah. of, well, sure, I like but, this but, source so better than that source. But, sure. but if the, the polarization problem seems to be there's a large chunk of the U.S. population, I believe, around the world yep. that is now disconnected entirely from reality. And that's the, the way we shorthand is we don't have shared facts anymore. And there is nothing that you can tell a Fox News viewer that's going to convince them in the upcoming election that Carrie Lake actually lost or whatever the contested election is. And and they are in a bubble and they're never – first of all, they're never going to see Semaphore anyway. But look – but anyone who was consuming that stuff, even if they were presented with Semaphore, wouldn't say, oh, well, thank you for the transparency. Now I understand. Now my worldview has been changed. I just think that's an incredibly broad brush. Yes. Right? Like – I, the White House put Jill Biden on Newsmax yesterday. I assume they think that many Newsmax viewers are in the category of people you suggest who think, you know, who if they were told by Newsmax. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, but I it's think they correct. probably they also sh- – They should do They it. probably also think that some are not. I think we live – our social media bubble, among other things, Twitter is a machine for identifying the dumbest and most obnoxious and most delusional people among your enemies and elevating them to you constantly. And sure, but any any poll, so, right, any no, poll of, of of Republican candidates and, and yeah. Republican voters, you see it over and over, right? And it's shifted too, oh, right? I mean, they, I th- they initially believed that January sixth was a bad thing, and now it's been yeah, turned I mean, around. I, I think, I mean, I, this is a bit of a digress. I'm now going to digress, but I think when people tell pollsters, I mean, the one I think about is that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. Are they saying that Barack Obama was born in Kenya, or are they saying that they hate Barack Obama? Like, I'm not. Is that are these statements of fact, or are these statements like I'm not sure this is. I think it's kind of a media idea that these are basically informational problems rather than like deep partisan and sometimes racist and sometimes, you know, sort of things that come from other sources, right? 
Like that's not like I don't think like it's people muddy, are, sure, but but I, I feel like we're dancing around this, and it's pretty clear. That, I guess like, I would say that. where I you're getting are, your news changes your your view of the world radically, and that's why people in Republican leaning counties aren't getting vaccinated at the same rate, that's right? For sure. And they are in a, a it's bubble's the wrong word. They are in a lockbox at this point, and so it seems like if Semaphore is is aimed at transparency and and some sort of uh, nod to alternate viewpoints, that's for a sizable chunk of the world. But it's a chunk of the world that was already open to that, not. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I like. And, it didn't and, have innate distrust. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think I have a like what percentage of, you know. And there's also a percentage of viewers of MSNBC, which is you know I think does great work a lot of times, but who think it is absolutely perfect and have has never been wrong. Oh yeah, no. And there's and, tons of people who are angry because the Times profiled MTG Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right, and this so, week so, it didn't so, say I mean, she's so a think, Nazi. In I just headline. think it's a broad, complicated, weird spectrum of people, and there are a lot of people who are both dissatisfied with what they're getting and do not think that like you and I are lizards. And you know, in somewhere in there, I think there's there's a lot of people there. So. I had a vague idea that you guys were playing around with the format of the news story. I didn't get up. I was in bed reading it when you guys launched on Tuesday morning and was reading your column and a bunch of other stuff. And and I noticed you'd bolded a bunch of uh, – but but besides that, it seemed like a conventional story. And then I went on Twitter and everyone's having this this really in, you know, intense chin stroker about the semaphore and how you deconstructed the article, which I literally didn't know you had done. So I don't know if I'm complimenting you or, or insulting you. I don't know if you're complimenting you. me or insulting me either. I think it is actually pretty intuitive that it, the way it, you tell a story yeah. to someone is you say – here the hey here's what happened here's, some facts, here's what, here's I, what I think it. here's what somebody else says it just seemed like a pretty conventional conversational but yeah. pretty straightforward I mean news I think article. when 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 you say we want to reinvent the news there is an impulse to be like oh are you putting it on the blockchain or like perhaps you have an algorithm and in fact I think we are trying to do something like very human and literal so explain what oh, sorry. the semaphore that's what you're calling it what is semaphore semaphore it was a joke we were like everything else it was a joke we were making so this is your article format now, now canonical. And there were, in fact, it was, I told my team before we launched that like one of the ways we would tell if, if this format made any sense to anybody and if they liked it was whether people parodied it. Like that's how you can kind of mm -hmm. tell. And there were like three pretty high quality parodies on day one. And to me, like we got kind of incredibly nice press, honestly, and people were so nice to us. But that to me was the, my favorite part was there were like just excellent parodies. But yeah, so the idea basically very literal about, about pulling apart here are the here are, here's what we are asserting as facts, and we are confident in them. And if we get them wrong, we will correct them, and we better not get them wrong. And here's the reporter's analysis, which, if it's interesting at all, probably is possible. There's some chance it could be wrong, and you got to realize that. But but the reporter knows a lot. There, you know, she's an expert and has been covering this beat for a long time, and is going to give you her best interpretation. But if there's somebody else out there who has a rival interpretation that, that's you know, that in some sense it makes sense and is legitimate. We're going to include that. It really struck me as a yeah. pretty conventional news story. I mean, obviously everyone's got their own house format, but, you know, you guys, there were stories about how you guys were blowing up the inverted triangle. But, like, that sort of very conventional, very straight-jacketed reporting when you were just talking about the journal having that, that seems like that's a lot. A lot of that has been now supplanted by – Internet news, a lot of stuff that you did at BuzzFeed and just a casual but authoritative way of speaking but to I readers. Think, yeah, but I think it's not just that. I think readers do find it unsettling that they don't always know, like, wait, is this – how do you know this? Is this a factual statement or not? And I think there is something meaningful about about trying to tease those things out. I also think it's a good way to tell a story. Like I, I Louise Mitsakis had just a fantastic scoop about TikTok's plans to build this huge kind of infrastructure around live stream shopping in America. You know, and it was a story that had, as you say, a lot like it had 
a factual piece, then it had an analysis about basically how Walmart and others have really struggled to do this. But then it had the view from Shenzhen, which is the sort of thing that fits often, un- does not fit all that well into that conventional structure, which is you've had this incredibly interesting conversation with an Amazon, in this case, a, a TikTok seller in Shenzhen, who's an English teacher who interacts all day with American consumers. And it turned out, it turns out like the kind of high pressure tactics she uses on Chinese consumers, like totally don't work on American consumers for whatever reason. And it is this alternate, genuinely kind of alternate point of view from a totally different place on the same information and the same plans that maybe it's a line in a story. The other thing is, you know, and that this was not a story like that, but sometimes there are stories where you're making a fairly heated, you know, as I would say my time story, actually. Like I had an analysis of sort of what ails the New York Times. And when I talked to people about it, not everybody, but some of the people I talked to said, you're totally wrong. What's going on is fundamentally just about the labor struggle and people are really unhappy with their salaries. And you're you're bringing in this kind of Wall Street stuff and you're bringing in this culture war stuff, but it's just a labor fight. And instead of having a half sentence where it was like, well, some people say it's a labor fight. This is what's really happening. I had a few paragraphs that said, here's a bunch of people disagree with me. They think it's this other thing. I don't know. And I, I kind of liked that. It felt more honest. We'll be right back with Ben Smith. But first, a word from a sponsor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. As you know, a lot of publications start with a new idea that they want to bring. Vox, where I work, uh, had these explainer cards that Ezra Klein was very invested in and eventually moved on from. How will you know whether this format is a thing you want to keep and whether you want to move on to something else at some point? I don't think Vox ever moved on. I mean, isn't, don't you have a show called Today Explained? Explaining and a Netflix show so called cool, Explained. But there was a specific sort of hyper card oh, the, the, the technical that he was format. Doing. Yeah. No, no, I it mean, was a spe- you were supposed to be able to like go and find all this other stuff we published. And oh, it was literally, see, you don't, I don't no remember it existed. That. But it was, a, it, it was a wedded to it. And lots of publications will start out with a new idea about how they want to present you, news and eventually move on to something that looks like closer to what everyone else is doing. You know, I think places that have clear identities like Vox. I mean, the, you know, the, right, the form, you know, the tech can change a bit and, but the, you know, but there's some sense of like, here's what we're trying to do and these are tools to do it and, the, you know, and, and how, ha- in the way you take that spirit to a video f- from a, or an event from a written article isn't going to be literal. But I think actually Vox is a great example of a place that had this very clear idea you know, basically stuck with it and it evolved and changed and sort of was interpreted in different media. But yeah, but I guess that's what I, I mean. That to me is kind of a model. Like I said, we're we're less than a week into launch. How long? And you have been at publications when at very early days. Yeah. How long will it take for the cake to be baked? Is this a six month process? A year? I, you'll say you're always always improving, always striving to innovate. But like, how long will it take for you to like get what you want? I mean, I hope this doesn't sound totally insane, and it probably is because I'm now really old. But I mean, the, the number Justin and I really have been talking about since we started is 10 years. That's how long you want to work there. No, that's how long like we feel like it will take to build something that that is kind of genuinely meets our ambitions, you know, in a way that is also 
you know, a totally responsible business. And, and we want to be really careful and smart about how we grow and build carefully. And, and yeah. So Let's that's, talk about the business stuff. You raised yeah. $25 million? Yes. Um, I think entirely from wealthy individuals? Yes. Uh, and that was a choice. Um, but to, to sure. target them as opposed to VCs. Yeah, we definitely weren't. I mean, I think, you know, be partly because we were saying, you know, we're, you know, we're locked in for 10 years in various ways. It it, it did feel like the pace of of sort of financial investors didn't totally make sense. We wanted people who were committed to it. And you've got how many folks working for you? Um, there are about 32 or 33 in the newsroom and maybe 20 some on the business side. Okay. So 50-ish. Between 50 and 60. And so- how long will that $25 million last you? Right now, it's a free site supported by ads. I mean, you know, I mean, I think if you look at the site, you'll see there, I think it, we launched with like eight really blue chip advertisers. And again, and I think you and I both came up in a different moment when we, when we had investors who were saying, don't worry about revenue, just grow. And, you know, I think probably both have our scars from that moment. And, and I think so for me, it's like, no, let's launch with a real business, align it with the news and get to profitability as fast as we can. We're not looking to sort of yeah we're, we're, we're yeah i think it's just a totally different model so i don't so i don't so there's not in which which case there's not a you know we're not looking to spend it all down so you don't have to go out immediately and do another fund, funding round in a pretty it, grim environment right i mean I, you know I, I mean i like who knows and i'm not i'm not an expert in fundraising strategy mm -hmm. but i but we don't we don't want to have to right and i don't think we'll be in a position to have to and it's free now and eventually you're going to expect me to pay for this yeah, I mean, I think another thing Justin and I totally agree on is we're just not ideological about revenue. Like we're going to try to build a big, you know, a big brand that people really like. And if it makes sense to fund the business by charging for all or part of it, we'll absolutely do that. But I think Justin said in one of the pieces, yeah, and, 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 the and plan I, is yes, to, and the, is the, to the plan sell certain, Yeah, and the plan is, is definitely to go after subscriptions. And um, the reason not to start with paid subscriptions to begin with once people have got – I get why you would want to start free and then say, if you like it, now it's time to pay. Yeah. Generally, that's pretty hard to upgrade people, right, if they're used to getting it for free. Do you think? I feel like that's the story of almost every media company in the world is that they started for free and then they started charging. And some of them were free for hundreds of years. So um, I would disagree I with that. Okay. I have the opposite point of view so you, on that. You think you can train them to do that? Yeah, I think people are to at this point used to nothing more than their favorite publications at some point saying, hey, if you really like this, we're going to put up a paywall or a metered paywall. Or in the case of Vox, we'll just ask you insistently to give us yeah, money sure. without calling it a donation. It, I mean, whatever works. That probably isn't going to be our strategy. Although, if if your listeners, you know, want to give feel like it, my so my, I got to turn on the tips thing on Twitter. And then there is a website. How would you describe the the look of the website? Stunning, beautiful, yellow. Yellow. There's a lot going on. It's a little retroy. Yeah, I mean, I love it. Obviously, I mean, it's um, but but I'm not. I don't have like a sophisticated design language. So, but, but we, but you know, we but we work with great designers and feel great about it. I asked you earlier in the year: Is this a newsletter? Is this a website? And you said we're treating them as equal citizens. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's but right. it strikes me that it's. I mean, in terms of the promotion you're doing, and also sort of the format, like here's Ben, and it's his it's his column, and you're getting it delivered by email. It seems like you're really leaning on email. For delivery. Yeah, I mean, email's great and we love it. And, you know, in our building really great newsletter products, but also, you know, investing a lot in the website and have some reporters who are only working for the website and are breaking stories on the website. And, you know, and I think there are some stories like breaking news stories that for which the web is the right medium. So, and I think if people want to come to the website every day and read it, we're thrilled. A thing I'm talking to all the newsletter based companies, and there's yeah. a bunch of them now about, is this idea that well, I just had Janice Min in here. Um, 
I subscribe to the Ankler because I want to read Richard Rushfield. And now you're sending me five other associated emails that I didn't ask for it to find. I don't mind that. But my question is, I'm going to keep reading Richard Rushfield. But I'm probably not going to open the other five. Like, or I certainly won't do right. it consistently. So you're making great journalism, but I'm not going to see it because you've trained me to get this thing delivered into my inbox. And that's the important thing and everything else doesn't get to me. I have the same same issue with the with the, your competitors, other folks doing yeah, the same stuff. That's interesting. I mean, I think we're in, you know, we're we're kind of trying to go deep in specific spaces that, you know, that sometimes are contiguous and I think there are people for whom like this fla- our flagship global newsletter is just like an amazing global first read written by these brilliant people in London. You know, is a great start, but then they work in finance, they're they're super interested in finance and they're reading Liz, but don't care at all about media. I mean, I think that's fine. I think we're pretty open-eyed about not you know, not imagining that we're the only publication in the world. And gen- the other thing we really, it just feels like a huge opportunity, honestly, is like if you get an email from the New York Times, it's like here are 17 links to New York Times articles. And like the couple, first three articles in the New York Times are among the three best articles of the day. But down, by the time you're down to like the 14th, 15th, 16th, you can find better things in other publications. And if you're trying to serve the reader, and we don't, you know, and we're not publishing a thousand things a day. So we want to serve our readers. We're trying to do a really good job of like scouring the whole internet for the best stuff and writing it up for you. An unkind thing that um, several of your competitors and media chatterers say generally behind your back, sometimes on, on Twitter, but generally behind your back, is that you tried to recruit a lot of people and didn't get the people you wanted or to be more kind, you, you didn't get as many. Pe- it was harder for you than you thought. What was that experience like? You know, it's about where as I expected. I mean, recruiting is really, really hard when you're recruiting for a startup as I've done before. Like, People, you know, you have to, you don't really know if people are like eager to take a huge risk with a huge reward or not. I mean, I think there's, <laughs> mention her name, but there's one person who everybody knew I wanted to hire and 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 everybody in the world wants to hire um, who, you know, I haven't hired yet. Writes about yet, Donald Trump. Who I haven't hired yet. But, um, but no, I think if you look at our team, I feel like great about it. And I think if you look at the work, more important, actually, if you look at the work they did. It works good. I'm just curious what you, what you made of, I assumed that you would be flooded with people who wanted to work with you specifically. Justin is a known entity. There's risk, obviously, in working yeah. for a startup, but you guys were going to have money. Obviously, there's people who in their lives can't take that risk on, but there's no job that's risk-free. Was there something about either the time that we're in or just the nature of journalists being more risk-averse than you imagined? No, the people were just about as risk averse as I imagined, but also lots of people. Yeah, I felt like I had amazing choices. Peter Kafka. I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, man. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave that there. So you have done. You have been at a bunch of um, companies that were early in their journey when you were there, right? Yeah. Politico, BuzzFeed. You've never done something. You didn't even mention the New York Sun. I did not mention the New York Sun. But this is the first one you've been at. That's from a standing start, right? No, it was at the Sun and Politico when we launched. Okay, you were there. But, at, but I was like, but you weren't running it. You didn't I own was it. So far from running it. In fact, uh, John Harris, the editor of Politico, just reminded me that like three days in, when they were like doing great, but I was pissed off about some minor thing that was I thought not up to my standards. I texted him like, I didn't leave the third biggest newspaper in America to work for Roll Call. <laughs> What an obnoxious thing to say! I hope none of the my thing about being a shitty that. employee is oh. that eventually you do get your karma if you eventually I know, manage. I, I didn't leave the New York Daily News to work for. I should have. Um, yeah. So what are yes. you learning? What are you learning running your own thing from from scratch? And BuzzFeed News, as you say, we started 
you know, from scratch, but on this huge, yep. you know, giant thing. Um, and you also didn't have to take out your own trash, right? Did not have to like literally, in some cases, take out the trash. And and yeah, we have an amazing office that I love that does not have the trappings of, it did not have as many layers, let's say, of security as it took to get in here. What am I learning? Um, the I guess in some ways, I mean, there are lots of reasons to do this and I like, you know, including just the opportunity. But also just how, I mean, it's just how much you can get done with a small team, just how much like a few reporters who are really good at their jobs can cut through, you know, relative to giant competitors where there's just, I don't know the point of diminishing returns, but it's really, really quick on a newsroom. You don't want a giant newsroom. You don't want to have 1,700 people like the New York Times does. I mean, right now I feel like I have exactly the right team and never want to hire anybody again. I don't think that's actually our plan, but I do think there's something just like fabulous about a team of 20 or 30 people. You can just do enormous amounts. What is the thing that you're missing right now besides trash collection from more established companies that you've worked at? I mean, I've never really worked at places that that were that established except for the Times. I mean, when I was at the News, it was already like, you know, it was it was established, but sinking. And the Times really is like special. I mean, I definitely felt like at the beginning at the Times, I could just get anybody on the phone. And then like then about like three weeks in, it was like, oh, no one will, t- will take my calls. But there was a sense, a great Times reporter who I tried to hire when I was at BuzzFeed once said to me that like he just couldn't ever get himself to leave the Times because when you work for the New York Times, you never have to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you never have to be like you say I'm working for Recode, which is a member of a yeah. Vox, which is owned by Vox nobody's Media, ever like what are you Fox. right? And nobody's ever like what are you doing here? And right, like uh, people are you know you just you're and, and you know and if you write a mediocre story and they put it on the homepage, it gets you know, not not as many views as you would think. Of course, there's still this incredible power law, but you'll get thirty or forty thousand views if you're boring. I mean, you know, my like I wrote what like fifty columns for the Times and. 12 of them were the worst 12 and like a bunch of people still had to read those because they jammed them on the homepage of this big website. And you just, and like, you don't get that when you work for Semaphore, like you, you know, you got to, and you know, and actually the newsletter does provide a little breathing space than that, but fundamentally like the stories have to be great and have to fight their own way out into the environment. Um, at some point when you guys are, are more established, uh, the advertisers who are coming to you will presumably want to have that reach, right? They they yes. won't be satisfied with the novelty of a high profile. Oh, launch. for sure. And we feel, and actually, like we, you know, we had way more reach and way more newsletter signups than we anticipated on in the first couple of days. How are you thinking about how you're going to grow distribution and reach in a world where Facebook is no longer even pretending to help uh, a, publishers? I mean, it's a totally changed world, isn't and it? And Google is. It seems quite clear that they're going to bring more and more stuff onto their page and send less and less traffic. Yeah, out. I mean, uh, sorry that the dumb answer is partly newsletters. It's but but it's also partly just do it, trying to do a really you know trying to do a lot of different things really well. You know, I think we're we you know we we're doing stories on the web well. We're we you know, there is an audience who lives on the web and reads stories on the web like the good old days, and we're hoping some of them will stick around, seeing signs they're starting to. We're trying to build a big, you know, newsletter audience. It was sort of amazing to look at our stats and say, like, wow, Facebook is just, it just used to be, there were these years when that was just the ocean, right? And everything else was a tiny little lake. And and that's, that moment has totally passed. And the, infra- the infrastructure of digital media is, is different. But I mean, ultimately, you can't totally fake it. Like, you just have to, if you do good work, and I do think ultimately breaking big stories is the tip of the spear. It's not enough. It's, you know, you have to, when people come back to your site when you broke a huge story, then you have to give them something that's really good and interesting and that they like. But I do think that 
when you're in the news business, like you got to have some news in it. What's the wildest thing that you have wanted to try and someone on your team has talked you out of? I'm definitely not telling you that. I heard secondhand that you guys were thinking like, well, maybe we would show the story to the person we're writing about in advance so they could get their response. Oh, you got to talk to Reed Albergati about this. But I actually think that's a good idea. Like, or at least an interesting idea. That's your idea or Reed's? I'm going to sell Reed out here. That's Reed's idea. But I think, and Reed is, by the way, Reed's the guy who broke the Lance Armstrong story. Reed is an incredibly tough reporter, tech with, reporter a, very good. with a huge track record of incredibly tough confrontational stories, broke a lot of the big Me Too stories in Silicon Valley. And I think when you do that kind of work, you realize, you know what, like you're not publishing it in a secret website. You're publishing it on the internet where the people you're writing about are going to see it. And if you want to be really fair, you should let them really respond, which you re- which the tradition is you call them. You, you fact check. You fact check and then you call them and then you... Whether if you're feeling really fair, you kind of like steel man their version and give the strongest version. Often reporters give the, you know, squeeze down and give a throwaway line to them. I actually, I kind of like, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about the mechanics, but I like the idea that you get a really full response from the people you're writing about when it's appropriate, when they're not contesting true facts, right? I mean, it's the internet. I always feel like I'll run everything you want to say yeah. at the bottom of the story, uh, just different yeah. than showing them but the story. Why right? is it different? Just, like, just are you to, afraid that they're going to bully you into changing it? No, I mean, again, I've I've been at I was at Forbes where we fact checked every word, which didn't make it any more true. Honestly, it just meant that someone had said yes. Yeah, but you don't, and you don't write, but you don't want to. I mean, but all, and I think good reporters. I mean, we were at BuzzFeed. You know, Mark Schuff, who's a great investigative editor there, who could come from the Journal and ProPublica, just had this practice of like you just put every allegation into a letter and you send it to them, and you just make sure there's just zero yeah, surprises. I think that I, I think that's. So kind of what happens already, I guess. Yeah, no, it is. But I mean, I do think, as you say, I, we we are not, in fact, showing our stories to people before they're published. I mean, I think that as long as you're confident that you're not going to be like scared when they yell at you, I think I don't. I think it's kind of an interesting idea, but it's certainly not what it's not something we're doing. You got to have read on the show to talk about that. I mean, I think maybe the dumbest idea that I had was that that we should just that our Slack should be open. Oof. Like we should just like be to- that would be real transparency, right? You yeah, and also on? not, and also <laughs> not nearly as interesting as anyone. Right, but the problem with things like that, be. that kind of transparency is like only people who hate you bother looking. Yeah, I mean, did you maybe you were still considering that? And then you saw the Elon Musk text. You're like, no, let's not. Yeah. And we just just let's nuked the whole slack. That. All right, I look forward to reading more of your stories. I look forward to seeing some of your crazy, not so crazy ideas. I wish you luck. Thanks yeah. for coming, Ben Smith. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Ben Smith. Thanks for coming on, Ben. Thanks for Jelani and Travis for editing the show and our advertisers for bringing the show to you for free. And this is a bonus show. You're going to hear another episode of Recode Media this week also for free. See you soon.